What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of Podmosh. Today we have a guy named Joel, uh, Joel Kobe. He's a flight paramedic for, gosh, he's been all over the state of Texas. So I kind of figured it'd be appropriate for EMS Week to highlight somebody who's been flying and doing this for about 12 years. Um, he's got a strong passion for the job and kind of uh, unveils some of the things behind the scenes that happen um, with EMS and uh, being a flight medic. He still loves the job. I'm, I got burned out from it, but <laughs> all the more props to him. And I really appreciate him, him coming on the show. Uh, you know, another thing that's really cool about EMS Week is there's a guy I know. He has a company called Lively IV. If you guys need any type of IVs that's mobile, like you, if, if you're honestly not feeling well, if you're hungover from the weekend, um, if you're not sleeping well, there's a whole different type of uh, pack, a bunch of different types of packages you can get. So uh, it's a mobile IV co- company called Lively IV. He's a paramedic, uh, really cool guy. Y'all gotta check it out. Um, and there's already a lot of good things that uh, have come from what he does. So, and it's kind of funny, you know, the ER, uh, a lot of the meds that they give is basically what he gives. Now, it's not life, not life threatening, granted, because he's not an ER. He's uh, definitely a non-emergency company, emergency company, but a lot of good things to say about this company. So y'all check them out called Lively IV. The link will be in this description of this episode. So happy EMS week and y'all check it out. I would say mostly medical podcasts, you yeah. know, yeah. MCRIT, you know, Flybridge, uh, a bunch of other random ones. Um, but, you know, I used to drive two plus hours to work <clears throat> before I started a star flight. So I listen to a lot more podcasts than I do now. You know, I, now I have like a 30 minute drive. Where are you based um, out of? Austin. Austin. Okay. So what is it? Travis County? Travis County Starflight. Yep. Starflight and Austin EMS are separate. They're, they're pretty really tied. So uh, Austin EMS and Travis County Starflight used to be part of Austin EMS. Okay. And probably 2000 something they split and Starflight is part of Travis County. So they're a county government asset. Um, So obviously we still do a lot together Uh because we're in the same, you know, geographical area. But I I don't know a lot of people, Uh, especially not from being down here. I don't know anybody. I'll be honest. When did you move down there? So we moved to, uh, I live in Elgin now, which is just east of Austin in December. Um, and I started with Starflight in January. Okay, man. So, yeah. <laughs> well, so I, it's, I know it's kind of out of the blue. We don't really know each other. Uh, I no. think I've maybe said hi to you one time, maybe twice. And then shortly yeah. after you sent me a friend request. That was years ago. <laughs> Um, so it's like, we've never really, we don't, we don't, we've never had a conversation. Um, no, but I see you love the job. I see you I love a it. lot. Yeah. I see you post yeah. a lot. Um, you seem like an interesting guy. Um, I, I'm all about trying to have conversations with people who just, man, love what they do. And, uh, maybe it kind of gives a, a different perspective into maybe EMS and flight EMS and yeah. what that world is like. Absolutely. Sound good to you? Yeah. <clears throat> so... You worked at MedStar or 
JPS started work. I started in Arlington at AMR first, and then Arlington, went into okay. the JPS. Yeah, I worked at JPS for five and a half ish years, something like that. Okay. So there yeah. Minutes. Oh, I don't right, work there anymore. But yeah, where are you at now? What are you doing, dude? I'm a stay home dad. <laughs> Hell yeah! <laughs> so, it's kind of funny. My uh, I, I'll, I'll probably cut this out on the actual recording, but because I've told the story a million times, but I got COVID uh, last August. I was yeah. working at, you know, a company that was delivering uniforms and cause I, I just needed the break for a bit and uh, yeah. I was pretty done. I was delivering uniforms and I got COVID. So they, they shut down a lot of, a lot of areas of the plant and then I went home and then my wife was like, Hey, like this sucks. I can't stay at home all the time now. And she's, she was stayed home mom for, you know, since the beginning for five, almost five years. And I was like, I love this. I was like, let's switch. And so she goes, okay. So the very first job she applied to, she got, and it, it was actually way more than I've ever made as far as really? money. Yeah. So I'm at home with the, my two kids. I got a five-year-old, almost five-year-old and a two-year-old. And uh, I podcast. I do a city podcast for the city of Keene, which is just not too far from here. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of building a small business that way. It's kind of funny. <laughs> Badass. Yeah. So we just had our first son in December. Oh, nice. Congrats, um, man. I got married in March of last year. Okay. So I got married, got pregnant, moved, got a new job, had a kid. Bro. And COVID, COVID 2020. So oh. I think I have uh, done enough for a little <laughs> while. Um, we're trying to like, you know, cap it off there for <laughs> yeah, yep. that crazy change. Well, Dude. So what led to all that crazy change? Like, why'd you move down in the first place? Just a better job opportunity? So, um, you know, I originally started, you know, grinding MS. You know, I started in North Texas. Um, my first full-time job was bottom fire department um, up, you know, mm-hmm. east of Sherman, small town. They ran county EMS. Um, you know, and if we had this conversation 10 years ago, I would have said, I would be a captain in some fire department, you know, and it's funny how life does not go as you plan sometimes, especially when we're young and dumb. I oh, mean, yeah. I made so many mistakes uh, in my early career and um, they, they let me where I am to now. And I'm in a fantastic spot. I'm in one of the most, demanded jobs and probably the nation, uh, very competitive and I can't be happier where I'm at. So, um, so I started in ground EMS, you know, working fire department. Um, I did Hunt County EMS, Collin County EMS, working Anna. Um, I did a lot of stuff all over the Metroplex and DFW, um, Justin fire department. Um, what I did worked you get into for, this career initially? So, being I, I really liked I love the fire fire side don't get me wrong I love rescue I love fighting fire um but when I started getting into the medical side <clears throat> I, I really didn't know much about it um you know I grew up in the fire department my dad was a firefighter he worked for playing a fire department he still is um after 32 years um so that's what I grew up with, you know, that in my mind was, man, that was it. That was my career for me. And 
when I started getting out of high school, um, I went straight in fire Academy. I went from there straight to EMP school, straight from paramedic school. Um, and I started volunteering in the hospital, <laughs> albeit I was volunteering on nights when my mom worked, which I don't know. It's a little weird probably for a lot of people, but you do you. <laughs> at the time it was great because all the night shift nurses loved me they were happy to have me there you know i ran got their coffee i did all the errands <laughs> for them you know they're like oh you go get food i'll buy food for you you know and okay. i was you know, a broke college kid so it was awesome um but they let me do so much probably than i was ever should have been um i did cpr you know helped all over the er and that I think was my pivotal point. Um, and you know what? I, re- I really like this medicine stuff. Um, you don't want to be a fire tard. <laughs> well, I miss it. Don't get me wrong. I miss the crap out of it because there's something about it. I mean, in the engine, blowing the queue, going down the street to a fire call, like there is nothing <laughs> like it. Don't get me wrong. Um, but you know, running County MS, you had, especially out there, I mean, you had uh, a local hospital that was 20 minutes away, but had zero capabilities. So uh, if you had a critical patient, you're going 45 minutes to hour and a half to get to a hospital that had any sort of cardiac stroke, anything. Um, it was not uncommon that you would start out and in a bait and route you'd have pressers going and you'd be doing all this stuff before you even got to the ER. So I do want, um, you, I want to pause you there for a second, because I do want people to realize that how significant this is because County EMS versus city EMS yes. is vastly different. So walk me through that. Um, it, it depends where you're at. Right. And where, when I started over 10 years ago, um, the capabilities that people have now in their EMS system, or night and day as far as protocols. Um, some counties are, you know, they're carrying blood, they're having ultrasound, they're doing all these things that were unheard of 10 years ago. Um, but, you know, for a lot of people who work in the city, uh, what's the excuse? Well, you know, I'm not going to do anything. Let's just haul ass because we're only, 10 minutes from the hospital. Well, that's kind of like what Dallas is. Dallas is almost a BLS service. Damn near it. Yeah. And I agree. You know? Um, cause so, they have 10 hospitals all within three minutes of each other. Arlington, their, their protocols are very, very basic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they don't even have RSI. They don't have at least. No, they took of change. No, they, when I was there, they took that away. Like, yeah, I was going to say, I, I don't have current knowledge, so, so yeah, I won't, you know, for me too. talk stuff. Um, but you, you go from that to a very rural county, you know, Bond, Fodder Department, Hunt County EMS, you know, you had one local hospital. They were a level three or level four trauma. You had zero cardiac, zero stroke. Um, especially in Bonham, you know, we were central fire-based EMS. Um, so we responded from the center of the County to anywhere else. So we had up to a 45 minute ETA to the patient. Oh, geez. And then from there you had 45 minutes back in the center of town to your little ER. 
or you had 45 plus minutes to get to any higher level of care. Um, and, and I don't think people who are in the Metroplex realize what 90% of EMS in Texas is like. Hmm. And I would say that even for hospitals, I don't think people realize from the Metroplex what is out there and far in, in regards to what kind of care is being able to be provided. Um, you know, cause when you bring patients in from rural Texas and they're like, God, why don't these people do this, this, and this, or why didn't they do this or that? And they're like, you just have no clue. You know, you're from this place where capabilities are endless. You have resources at the wazoo. Um, all right. So give us, a, give us an example. There. Practically, give us an example. You know, you respond to West Texas to a three-bed ER with one doctor or not even a doctor. You have a, a nurse practitioner or a PA with two nurses running a three-bed ER, running a trauma, and that's all they have. Like, that's literally all there is available. Um you know, you respond there to pick up that patient and take it to downtown. Are you talking um, about we're, flight? We're, are you flight at this point? Or are you ground? Yeah, I'm talking okay. about flight, flight specifically. Okay. But it still is um, some of the EMS that I've ran that that was the same thing too because we yeah. did transfers out of those facilities um, even to the next biggest town, you know, to a level two ER. Hmm. Um, you just had to make it work. Um, and it's no fault to their own, you know, sure. Um, they don't have the most up to gate, up to date guidelines, um, yeah. or, or whatever these, these top trauma centers are doing and these, yeah. you know, cutting edge stuff because they're just trying to get by. They're just trying to stabilize this patient, um, and get them to a tertiary care for facility. Yeah. The next level of care. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's funny when you talk to people from who've never worked rural, they've never been outside of um, Fort Worth or Dallas, you know, this, this big conglomerate healthcare in, in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex is huge. Hmm. Um, and very and even competitive, very competitive trauma, you know, anything for money, right? Mm-hmm. As much as we argue, here we go. You know, Let's go. Throw, <laughs> Cardiac and trauma are, you know, are, are money makers. Yeah. Oh, um, so it's competitive. Uh, Isn't that funny how capa- medical for care capabilities, has, like medicine oh, in general man. is just money. Isn't that weird? Absolutely. So, oh, and, and what we used to do in Dallas, um, take CPR directly to cath lab, anything like that. And then now I'm here in Austin and they don't do that. Mm. Um, so just going from and flying from all over the state, uh, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, Dallas are the same, but different, you know, it is crazy how complex healthcare is, um, from region to region and in the same state. Um, so, you know, I started out in North Texas, Dallas, Fort Worth. Um, my, I worked in children's for Dallas for a couple of years, a year and a half, um, before I started my first flight job. Um, I started out for Arivac. It was my yep. very first flight job. Um, working in Decatur, Texas, 
area back six, eight. Um, I know it was a great experience. Um, great starting point for me. I had some great partners. Um, I definitely learned a lot, went through some, some hard times. Um, and, you know, shortly thereafter, a couple of years, I got hired on for PHI, um, PHI or medical, mm-hmm. which I moved to Temple. That was um, my very first base that I opened. And that was a brand new base at the time. Um, and a couple of years after that, I went to a float position, which meant I worked damn near everywhere in the state. <laughs> which I loved, uh, you know, it was my goal to work when I was area back. I was trying to work every base in the state. Um, I think I got to like 26 Jeez. out of the over 30 at the time. I think they're up to 40 now in Texas. I don't even know. Wow. Um, <laughs> and then at PHI, they had 16 bases when I, when I first started in, um, I think I worked every one of them, but two. So, <laughs> so that's kind of cool because you have a unique perspective that most people in the medical field don't have. You've seen I've, most of Texas state healthcare. Most of Texas. Uh, one of these days, I keep talking about it. I'm, I'm going to get a map of Texas and start putting pins at every hospital that I can remember that I've been at. It, it would be pretty interesting. Um, I mean, I, I've been to East Texas, West Texas, South Texas, South, South. Border Texas. Um, How old are you? I'm now 31. 31. Okay. Huh. Yeah. That's that's uh, um, young to be doing. That's awesome, man. Honestly, I was very privileged to start very young. Um, so, what have you learned from all this? From being all over the state, seeing all these just different ways that people do things. Is there a common thread, or is everybody just different? Everybody's a little different. Okay. Um. Now being working for a program that has the same protocol statewide, right? So that has some advantages. Um, but regions are different. Um, and as many mistakes as I've made, it is difficult to work with everyone you come across, right? Mm. And I think anyone who's worked on the ambulance has come across a partner that they didn't like. <laughs> and you have to be with them for 24 hours. Um, and so I would say the number one thing I've learned is communication is key. If you don't like somebody or you love somebody, talking to them uh, constantly on a call and being in open communication makes your job easier and makes you go home in peace. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's the biggest takeaway from from working the entire state. That's your biggest takeaway. Uh, that's from working the entire state because you know it, it's interesting because you'll you have to have patience um, because I'll I'll turn around I'll before you know now I'm a starflight but I walk into ER in Lufkin and then the next day I'd be in Corpus Christi. They don't know you. They've never seen you before. They ex- expect professionalism, um, which I think is very lost in today's um, age and age group that are working, mm-hmm. right? It's a very lost um, art. Why, why is that important? Why is professionalism important in EMS? 
Because it doesn't matter what the person says to you that uh, you were there to provide a service. Um, <clears throat> and particularly in air medical, that is very political. You know, if you do something they don't like, they're not going to call you again. That's the dirty side. Right. Um, but regardless of what happens and where you're at, regardless of what they do, whether you think they are complete idiots that you are going to walk into that room, walk to the back of the ambulance and say, hi, how are you? How can I help you today? What do you have for me? What can I do to provide my service to you? And you're taking that patient, you're providing critical care is to the best of your ability <clears throat> and you're delivering that patient to higher level of care. Um, <clears throat> and that's um, specifically air, air medical, but even in ground EMS, like being professional, even if it's 3 a.m. and grandma calls you because they stubbed their toe or they fell for the fifth time today and this, this is the fifth time you've been to their house, that you're professional, you say, hi, ma'am, what can I do for you? And you assist them. Um, at what point, that is, yeah, but what, at what point does it become like where, you know, the fifth time where some of these, those high call volumes, those are not high call, high call volumes, the, the uh, what do they call it? The, the bounce backs, right? The fifth yeah, time you run yeah. up that night it, and it's, it's for hard. a tummy ache and then it's for a headache. It is hard. So how, um, how can you be professional in those situations when you know like each call is costing, you know, $15,000 or $10,000 that she's not going to pay that it's actually going to pay the ta the taxpayers are going to pay you but, know but what's that matter to you what's that what's that matter to you right it's coming it's coming out of my paycheck but is it it is no not really uh taxes yes that's what but, I'm but what i'm saying is like it, it's not directly impacting you um and it's hard don't get me wrong yeah. each one of us that have been there i'm playing devil's advocate here by the way uh, uh, oh sure but like on the 24th <laughs> call on the 24th hour you are freaking done mm -hmm. done 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 you're ready to go home you're over it um and I, I can't really say that uh i don't have <laughs> have sympathy right like just just smile away you know like <laughs> No, all we want to do is shit the middle finger, you know? Um, and that's hard. That's a really hard situation to be in, but I, that is not, um, that is not every person in EMS, right? Hmm. I feel like even though our, our call volume is significantly increased, especially in Metroplex areas, even rural EMS call volume has increased significantly. Um, but very few, I feel like, are DFD running 24 calls in 24 hours or more plus, um, which I cannot even handle. I can't wrap my hand, mind around it. I'll be honest. Um, and, and it's very different because, you know, I haven't been on truck in, in several years now. Um, Can you break down what the main difference is between air and ground? Um main difference critical care whether it's needed or not <laughs> okay break that down even further so
you know, I, I feel like your medical, you're pretty much called for one reason or the other. You're either called for speed or you're called for a high level of care. There's something that you can provide that that EMS service cannot. Um, whether it be blood, RSI, intubation, um, you know, chest tubes, finger thoracostomies, um, ultrasound, um, crike. Some places can't do crike. Uh, th- there's a multitude of reasons. Ventilator, when you're talking about inner facilities, right? You have a ventilator, you have IV pumps, you have critical care training. Um, you know, being able to walk to an ICU and take an ICU patient, whether they could be going for ECMO, sick as sick can be. What, uh, explain what explain what ECMO is, because again, the majority of our audience aren't EMS people; they're not medical people. So you're saying a lot of words uh, here. So break down man, ECMO. You're getting, you're getting me into the weeds. You better pause this. No, let's look go. It up. Let's go, bro. <laughs> um. You know, I, I don't personally deal with ECMO, right? Uh, I've never actually transported an ECMO-specific patient. Um, but we've taken patients that are either ECMO candidates mm. or they're going to be placed on ECMO when we get them to the, the receiving facility. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So this is a machine that, they uh, place into the largest uh, artery and veins in your body. And it, it does everything the heart does and lungs do for you. So it moves the blood and it oxygenates it. So it basically bypasses all of that, allowing your body to rest, um, whether it be your heart or your lungs um, or both to be able to recover that. So it could be for a multitude of things. It could be for respiratory failure. It'd be for cardiac failure or, you know, you have um, a heart attack and you die in some places or if you meet the right criteria, um, you're a witness for rest. You die in front of somebody and they start CPR. They're taking you straight to a certain hospital that is putting you directly on ECMO while CPR is being performed. And then you go to the ICU, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty cool mm-hmm. to me. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. awesome. There's a lot uh, of what, technology out there that we don't know. What really we can do to save people lives and, and you, no, it doesn't always work. Right. But um, it, it's, it's awesome technology and, It'll be a long time before I think it is so widespread. You know, it's not um, ECMO is done in Austin, but doing like the CPR to ECMO is not what's happening here. And it takes time for that for that to take place because um, it's risky. Yeah. And um, it affects numbers, right? Hmm. Uh, the amount of people who could probably be trialed on that and dies then you're you know doctors in hospitals are all about numbers right so uh then you get into politics all right so let's Um, get let's get into politics what have you seen as far as that is not my (laughs) no i'm not talking about regular politics i'm talking about medical (laughs) politics things that you've seen that like that's that's pretty messed up like 
we're supposed to be here helping the patient because I've seen that a lot. Well, and that's what I'm saying. Like it is, it varies from region to region. Um, and I don't know why that is because it, it basically boils down to the hospitals and doctors themselves, but um, how some places are, are very progressive in cardiac, like I was talking about, um, taking a STEMI NRS direct to the cath lab and doing catheterization uh, and placing stents. Some places are doing that and some places aren't. So in Austin, they are doing it because uh, in my opinion, in my opinion only, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, it affects their numbers poorly. So instead of doing the best thing for the patient and a patient, say a 35 year old cardiac arrest and V fib could possibly be saved. Um, so what, the, what do they do? Nothing. So you take them and then what they put them in like ICU or what? Lost your video. Um, if you get ROSC, yes, but most of them are coded for 20 minutes out in the field, like most people, mm-hmm. and then called unless they, unless they obtain ROSC. Um, There's a pretty interesting debate on if stents are actually um, long-term saving lives because a lot of people, like once you place that stint, which I agree. I like this. The idea of stints are great, but a lot of people are getting stints who aren't supposed to. And I'm not talking about the 911 emergent setting. I'm talking about just stints in general. You know, sure. that's what people want to go to immediately. I think the max you can have is five stints. So as soon as you have five stints, um, you're kind of a walking time bomb at that point. You're not really fixing the underlying in, in the bypass. Right. Yeah. And it's, but it's like, I feel that's argue about, arguable about most things in medicine because we're all making it up right what do you mean anything we do especially when it's very high risk um there may not be studies for it there may not be literature and data for it um medicine in itself is just trial and error right well like procedures you have to have um data for before it can actually pass and be done in the field so right but who's doing them to get the data like research what do you mean (laughs) the journals journals you know jama hospital hospitals are doing them right so um i'm trying trying to figure out what what are you saying i want to get into this uh i um I feel like anything in medicine is risky. Even the things that are supposed to be super, super safe. What's probability? Um, It's all probabilities. Well, sure, but it's all risky. Yeah. You know, what is less risky than not? Like when anytime you do a medical intervention, it's um, a toss or the probability is okay. If you don't get a stent right now, as we're doing CPR or as you're having a massive STEMI, then your chance of dying chance, the probability of dying is high. So sure. I take multivitamins, right? Cause it's the <laughs> helping you is good. Right. <laughs> well, whether it is or not, just the probability of it might be helping you sounds great. Right. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, uh, you know, from, when we look at our end of as far as EMS, right, we typically do things that have been filtered down, 
as far as studies and research and it looks safe and because doctors aren't going to sign off on their medical license for doing us for us doing stuff that is superly risky or unsafe. Um, but in general, you know, what we do and what we take people to hospitals for, I think, um, it all has some inherent risk, right? You know, you have a stroke and they're going to go do TPA. That's risky. Mm-hmm. You know, you turn around and, and then have a hemorrhagic stroke and then herniate and you're dead. So break down what TPA is, what you, what we use it for and the cause and all that stuff. Um, it, it is in, in layman's terms as a clot buster, it helps, um, break down the fibrinogen and, um, when you have an ischemic stroke, um, it helps break down those clots that hopefully restores blood flow to the area that's hasn't had blood flow. Um, but the issue is that it's so, it's such a crazy blood thinner and, and clot buster or whatever. That it's it, too good. Yeah. Right? It can actually it's kill you good. on the other end. Yes. So you go to the other end and you say, then you break a blood vessel, you burst something and then you can't stop it because you have no clotting factors because that medication has completely removed it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, 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 that's everything in medicine. I mean, right. That I mean, from SSRIs, you have um, something that can, as of quote unquote, thirty three percent chance of fixing your sure. depression, but so do water pills. So yeah, the side effects on SSRIs are crazy extreme, just like uh, TPA now. Now, SSRIs typically aren't going to kill you immediately unless you overdose on them. But like right. you're saying, it's all... Which are very nasty. <laughs> They're very nasty. I'll yes, tell you they that. Are. What's that? Uh, Amnitriptyline? That's one of the worst. That's that's how I see it kill people. That one right there. Yeah. There was another guy I was <laughs> yep. working with. He goes, hey, hey, dude, check this out. He goes, check out Amnitriptyline. He showed me the chemical compound, and it's the exact opposite of Benadryl. Uh, it's a mirror image of Benadryl. And that's why both are horrific overdoses. <laughs> One narrows the QRS complex and one widens the QRS complex. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. So, but I mean, that, and that's what I'm saying. Like everything, medications, everything that that's, it's all high risk to a point. Right. Um, But, you know, some doctors, it's all about, especially in medicine nowadays, you know, hospitals are all about um, the, my mind's blank, not reviews, but you know, their, their point, uh, are people unhappy or unhappy about their oh, yeah. visit? Patient satisfaction scores. Patient satisfaction scores. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, it's yep. all about that. Ooh, doctors a, are all ooh. about their, their death rates. And that's what I was talking about, you know, cardiology and taking semi patients to cath lab. Well, most of those patients die anyway. So then that reflects bad on their scores and their, death rates as a doctor so they don't want to do it even though they have a potential of really creating um a possible good outcome for patients so you're you're saying a lot of the issues here is that people doctors and hospitals are trying to play god right that's a big medical issue medical ethical issue right now is how far do we play god in medical ethics um sure there's some point of that, right? I mean, that's um, what kind of you're saying, right? Well, no, I'm I'm talking, I'm saying that people are too worried about numbers and satisfaction scores than doing the best thing for a patient. 
But that's kind of that we're kind of saying the same thing though, because the numbers and satisfactions we've found. Like, how many times have you been on a, on a uh, a CPR or something crazy that the person just shouldn't have survived, right? Um, almost you know internal decapitation type stuff, and they somehow survive. Yet somebody who jumps over a puddle, breaks their leg, bleeds out, and dies. Like that doesn't make sense. Like the numbers don't really <laughs> add up a whole lot in no end of life scenarios right those ndes those no. death experiences so and they, they can, never will make sense exactly so if yeah. if we're judging life based on the numbers and people who are making these decisions are basing their life and death decisions on the numbers when the numbers really don't hold water <laughs> no the, when, so the numbers don't hold water in reality but the hospitals, you know, are affected by their patient yeah. satisfaction scores. Less fun. The reviews of more. doctors, yeah, the reviews of doctors are affected by their, say, death rates. Mm-hmm. So it's like this double-edged sword because yeah. they don't want to do things that could possibly be beneficial for patients because it's all about satisfaction scores in what their numbers look like. Um, and that's, that's what I'm saying. Right. So we're in an unfortunate world that those numbers matter more than anything else. Hmm. They would rather have good numbers than do the right thing for a patient or provide services that could benefit patients because um, at the end of the day, they won't get paid if their numbers are good. Mm-hmm. yep and it's that greater good idea yeah i mean i mean it's it's interesting because i'm not um i wouldn't say i'm the smartest person in air medical for sure let alone a scholar um i can't base my opinion up necessarily on on facts by itself so <laughs> i will put that disclaimer out there because I'm, I'm sure somebody's going to listen to you and it's like, oh, he's so wrong, you know. Well, like, well, here's the thing, man. Like, this is what people, I observe, right? People can learn from everything. Where Everything that we draw our knowledge off of is something that has happened to us, an experience that had occurred. You know, like that's why um, with children at a very young age, what they learn from zero to six is extremely important because they're only going to base what they know on what is in front of them. That's experience. That's knowledge. That's, that's all the above. That's that neuroplastic that everybody's jumping on. Um, and so you as a flight paramedic, as a, as a medic who's been, what is it? 12, 15, 12, 13 years now. Almost 12. Yeah. Yeah. So 12 years. Remember, right. Yeah. 12 years ish. Um, in the field, you, 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 you've run into a lot of situations that you can't explain with facts or with numbers. Um, you're like, this, this makes zero sense. Uh, all by all accounts, uh, this person should have lived or this person should have died. And it makes zero yeah. sense. And I think everybody who's been in the field for not even that long in the medical field for just a few months, uh, you realized how, <laughs> um, how gray the world is. It's not black and white. It's not, it's not like you do CPR and then you get them back. Uh, it's, it's no, books no. don't make any sense. If, if you try to make, if you try to make our especially EMS for a black and white, it's going to be, mm-hmm. it's going to be really hard on you. Yep. And I did. Cause it's, when I first got it's in, that's how it was, man. Yep. Well, sure. Cause that's how we're taught. Right. Yep. 
kind of goes back to being afraid. Like they're, they can't teach you gray area. Right. Because that doesn't fit into a test or anything like that. You know, it's so, it's so hard to teach you how to be a medic in real life because Mm -hmm. there's too many just unknown factors you know, walking up because no two calls are the same. You go to the same patient's house for the 15th time in your, you know, five month stretch, or that's probably being generous. Um, each one of those interactions may be a little different. You can't teach that. Um, so how do you, how, like, if you were going to be in a teaching position and you actually had your university telling you to teach it to the book, which the book is very black and white. Here's the facts. If you present with this, then you do this. But how do you teach gray? How do you teach critical awareness, actually using your brain a little bit, maybe feeling your gut? Because I don't know about you, but I've talked, my my brain has talked out my gut feeling a million times. And 100% of the time, the person dies. (laughs) I've talked myself out of a multiple heart attacks, you know? So how do you practically... you cannot be good you cannot be good at gray area in my opinion unless you are good at everything else you can control right if you don't know your medications their dosages what they do their side effects um that whole process each intervention you do why you're doing it um if you don't know all of that, you can't treat gray area. Because if all you know is black and white and you don't know, well, all I know is protocol X says for SVT, I get this. And you just do this because that's what the protocol says. But you don't know the gray area. You don't know how to read your symptoms and like, okay, well, his heart rate's this, but he's also, you know, in a lot of pain. Maybe I need to treat pain before I try to treat his heart rate. That's 150, right? Yeah, I've, I've seen to, a heart rate at 210. It was sinus tech. Yeah, but being able to think outside the box yeah. other than just, oh, the monitor says X. I have to treat X because that's what my protocol says. Yeah, life is not a mathematician, right? Life is no. everything, no. right? So, so that's one of those things I'm so I, I struggle with in society is the box approach. Everybody's trying to put everybody in a box, but if everybody's trying to put everybody in a box, then why is no DNA the same? Why is no one person yeah. the exact same? Nobody fits in a box, right? So why are yeah. we doing the box? Is that because it's the best way for group mentality for, is that the best way to actually control mass individuals, mass groups? I don't know. It's, it's, there's some really like screwed up stuff right now. And I, I'm just trying to figure yeah. out. Well, yeah, and I think when it comes down to teaching, like it's all about they can't teach anything else because they have to teach a test, right? That's ultimately what it comes down to in education system in general is they have to be able to teach a test. And what are tests? Black and white. You can't have a gray area in tests. You have four answers and one of them's got to be right. Yeah. So what would you do? If you were able to con- to completely throw out the test system and you have these new brand new EMTBs or paramedics who haven't had any field experience, which that's also another, that's a whole nother level of, I personally think that all EMTs should first be out in the field before they become a medic, but that's just me. Sure. Um, 
but I, I don't know, man. Like, it, there's so much that you can do if, like, what's the first kind of gut feeling that comes to your mind right now? Well, even from when I I went through med, from high school, I mean, the technology and realism um, that you can do now with sim and sim aids and these dummies that breathe and do all sorts of weird shit. Um, we didn't have anything like that when I threw, went to Cranberry School. You know, it was just <laughs> here's this plastic yep. piece of plastic. Uh, act like it's real. Mm-hmm. Um, simulation is key, but you know, to a point, it, it doesn't replace a real patient. Um, is there a way to 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 accomplish these things? I don't know if there is. Right. Um, it's hard because again, there's so much gray area. So, um, a lot of it, you know, they're not even letting paramedics go to the OR to do innovations. They used to, they used to, that's what I did when I was through Mm -hmm. primary school, but they, a lot of places have stopped allowing it because it's too much of a risk. Mm for the doctors to let these students come in who have never touched a patient before and innovate. Mm. So I, you know, I see it both ways Weird. that it's very risky um, to let somebody who's been done nothing but practice on a piece of plastic 10 times, and then you're going to let them come in and, and innovate your old person. And what is the most litigated probably procedure airway mm-hmm. well it's just like failed residents are the same yeah. exact thing failed airway um just leads to a multitude of issues and um people like code you know brain injury is the most probably litigated procedures yeah. um but then again how do you let paramedics who have never done it before into the field to go do it on real patients. Mm-hmm. So the simulation, what you're saying is really helping all with a lot of these things. I think so, because we're getting hyper-realistic uh, mannequins. Um, I mean, some of the ones that are, that are coming out in the past, not even five years, less than five years are just so freaking cool. Hmm. Um, and we, super we realistic. We still have the issue of the gray area, you know? How do we get past yeah. it? Or is that just something you just have to bite the bullet and move forward? Um, yeah. Uh, and part of it is a failure of EMS systems themselves, right? Because they don't want to get dedicate the time and money it takes into taking a person out of paramedic school and putting them in the field. Is 10 shifts enough to take a brand new person and probably put them with a brand new EMT and say, okay, go have fun. Mm-hmm. You're on your own now. That's what it does with me. Yep. It's <laughs> hilarious. But it, that's reality. Yeah. And people don't realize that the layman doesn't, person doesn't realize that the person showing up their house on the worst day of their life 
may have zero experience and this is their first call and you know god help them because, because again i mean honestly yeah because again yeah. it's it's a money thing like they, they, they don't want to pay overtime they don't want to pay this person for maybe six months to make them proficient in everything that we do yeah and a lot of these are uh issues with private ems i've noticed i don't know if every fire department's like this I know some of the fire departments I've worked with uh, have a lot more resources out their back because again, it's city funded, right? The private sure. EMS is is a lot a lot harder. So that's another lamb yeah. whole animal. Um, so every every first responder has those times that they kind of just went into the gutter based on whatever call they've seen. I'm sure you're you're thinking of one right now. I know I am, um, and it really shaped who you are right now. Uh, I'm not. I don't don't want to bring that up because it's something that's still hard to talk about and that's another one of those things that people need to just stop doing is you know when they hear you're a paramedic oh what's the craziest thing you've seen man shut up like <laughs> that was a i don't know which one to talk about yeah exactly um there's a lot of interesting studies that are backing how the ems field first responders police fire ems um attract psychopaths and create psychopaths based on the field that this is, I mean, you're, you're literally have to be a psychopath to do this for so long mm-hmm. to some, to some degree. So kind of what are the, some of the things that you have to deal with mentally, um, to get past your hardest times? You know, it's interesting. So when you look at say the past 10 ish years, um, there's been a change because one, the amount of longevity in people has decreased significantly. What does that mean? So people who are making a career out of EMS, um, the amount of time they've put in is becoming less and less, right? So Hmm. 10 years ago when I started, it was not unheard of. Now, fire department may be a little different because it's easier to have a career in fire department, but even EMS in general, it was uncommon for people to have 20, 30 year careers. And today, um, people are getting out at 10 years or less, 15 years or less and done like getting out of it completely going to work at home Depot, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, anything not to do with EMS. Mm -hmm. Um, so what's the cause of that? what has changed? Is it the call volume has changed? Is it the type of calls that we're doing? Is it, is it the amount of calls? I mean, burnout studies show burnout is significantly higher in today's EMS. Um, so our, our psyche is the most important thing of our being. Um, and not only is it, a fire EMS issue, but it's also a male issue of tough it up, buttercup, suck it up. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that was one of the first things that uh, I was told. You know, if 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 you're struggling with this, maybe this field doesn't cut out for you. Sure. Now, <laughs> I gotta admit, there is a balance to yes. that, right? Yes, I agree. <laughs> You know, you see enough shit. You're like, yeah, yeah you got to balance it a little bit. Okay. Yeah. But um, it has to be okay to go see a therapist. Um, 
some of the things I've seen in air medical. Well, guess what? I picked it up from a ground EMS. It wasn't just me. I picked it up from a medic, an EMT, a firefighter. Like they all had to deal with the same shit that I saw. Um, it's got to be okay to go seek help. Um, and a lot of people may have heard of Tony Glenn. She's a pretty relatively famous um, counselor or psychologist, Tony Glenn. Glenn. Um, as far as air medical concern, and she's done a significant amount with um, fire departments and signing on with them to be basically their um, their help. Hmm. Um, That's awesome. But you know, if there's been a air medical crash, helicopter crash, you know, she's usually involved in some way, especially with the people that were involved. Um, because I've been there and it sucks. Um, but the stigma has to go away that it's wrong to ask for help. Yeah. I think that that's why people get out of this because they reach a point, um, that either a, they commit suicide or they just have to get out because they can't handle it anymore. Yeah. The, uh, suicide rates for this field is still pretty high. I think it's actually going up. Very high. Yeah. yeah. I know I've been there. Um, suicidal on, on some level. I actually have to talk myself out, you know, man, this, this, it, you kind of just got to figure out how to, whether it's through community or through your, with your partner you talk it out. Yeah. That's what I've had, kind of had to realize. Yeah. <clears throat> um, having someone you can talk to is most important. Absolutely. Um, I, I've been, I've been very blessed that as I've worked through this career that I've had people to talk to, um, people that have helped me through some, some stuff, bad, bad crashes, uh, et cetera. Um, but my wife also is a, is a flight nurse. Mm. That helps significantly. <laughs> nice. That's a big deal. Uh, she works for a different company, but still, like, I can come home and vent and talk and um, say I had a bad day, and she's going to understand because she's been there too. And that's that is a rarity, right? I I am blessed because that that's my ability. Um, but there are counselors in almost any major metroplex that specialize in um, either fire, police, or military PTSD. And finding someone to go talk to is okay. Mm. I don't care if it's maintenance. Like, you, you know what? Okay, I'm not suicidal right this second. Okay. Have, if you have had a bad call or two, go talk to somebody. Don't let that build up and become irritable, um, become angry, um, become depressed. Any of the multitude of side effects of PTSD to get to the point of ending your own life. Hmm. It's unacceptable. Yeah. And we have to stand up uh, as a career field and say that it's okay to go ask for help. We support you. We're here for you. Um, 
and I think maybe that would, that would change some, um, of the suicide rates and maybe our career longevity. Mm. Do you think that's the big, biggest thing that people are, are dipping out for because of just the mental toll or do you think it's more financial or is it all the above? All the above. I mean, there's sure there's the financial there, but I think the mental is what fucks you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I know I was done even financially, man. It was, it was hard. Um, it's just not a, uh, a well-funded field, especially private EMS. Sucks, right? Mm-hmm. It's so, so crazy. <laughs> Teachers, paramedics, uh, <laughs> just like the most needed unfunded field ever. Yeah. Um, it's pretty sad. I get it, man. Um, yeah. As we kind of wrap up, what are some of the, if, if you could have, you know, $30 million right now, you know, and it was, it had to be dedicated towards this field. What would you do with it? Hmm. That's hard because there's a lot of things. Mm-hmm. You can even narrow it down to the top three, even if it's, a, I mean, fixing the medical, um, if it's funding, if it's more research, if it's whatever. Um, If I could start two two different groups, um, nonprofits, what you will. I mean, I think one is still uh, giving counseling and debriefing after calls and proper debriefing and, and the ability uh, to do that, especially in these we're talking about rural places who have no, have no money, have no funding. Um, that would be huge. And another would just to be a, a nonprofit for equipment, you know, um, how many places I've been to, they have ambulances that are 20 years old. They have life pack 12s, you know, <laughs> they're, <laughs> which is yeah. funny when you think about it, but you know, it, it's, <laughs> crazy how uh poor and just under resourced places are um and people have no clue mm-hmm. yeah, yeah and maybe bring more awareness to you know your local municipality and you know, that ambulance that yeah. is running this city that crew maybe on their third overtime shift in a row. I know there's <laughs> sure. I don't know how what it is now, but back in the day, um, I mean there are guys who'd run forty hours. Like it's nothing. Like one guy used to work Friday and get off Monday morning. <laughs> you know, night day. Oh yeah. Night, night, yeah. Night, night, day. Man, I used to work forty eights for months straight. And it's it's also different forty eight where on, you are. Well sure, but twenty four on or 48 on, 24 off, 48 on, like just repeat indefinitely. Yeah. Um, that's when I've probably had the most <laughs> near wrecks in my life mm-hmm. as well. Falling asleep on the way home. Yeah. It was crazy. I, I can't believe that I, I did it. Um, yeah. And just 
somehow made it through it. And you're starting on Vs, you're doing <laughs> entire protocol procedures, you're doing running and, and driving, driving an ambulance yeah. and um and, and now I'm even a higher risk environment where a decision can either in my whole crew patients like everything in a second. I mean it's um yeah. I would say that's another thing too that people are unaware of just how how overworked um we are. Uh, I think air medical is is privileged in a way that they've pushed more for fatigue management and you can you know what I've done two calls it's 1 a.m. I'm done. You can call your manager and say we're out of service for 4 hours. I'm going to bed. You can't do that on on, on any mess. I didn't even know you could do you that. Can't do awesome. it. Wow. You know how blessed that we can do that and no questions asked. You know what? Great. See you in four hours. Whatever. Um, and I've I've only done that maybe five times in seven years. Mm. You know, but still. No one on the ground can do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you going to do if you call your boss at 1 a.m. and be like, hey, boss, I'm tired. I need a break. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tough luck, buttercup. Yeah. Yeah. Suck it up. Yeah. You know? Um, so it's it's crazy. Um, What's the, uh, the the last message? Like, If, if this was going to be going to you know, every household in America, you know, what is something that you would want to leave them with? Mm. I guess specifically as a medic. Every house in America? I'm just no, saying in general. It's, it's not going to happen. Not gonna, I don't know. I'm not going to reach millions of people, but... Um, up, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man... 12 years it's been an amazing career and i don't regret it one second um and, and really my message i think would be is if you enjoy helping people and you don't mind being sleep deprived this is the more, still is to me one of the most rewarding careers you can ever do hmm. um it takes a lot of humility a lot of compassion a lot of heart um and it, it is draining at times right but it is the most rewarding thing and it may be one in a hundred patients to say thank you but that one person that says thank you or you get to hold grandma's hand on the way to the hospital and say it'll be okay dude that's it right there man that, those are the moments that that make my night um you know, I've probably only had a handful of patients in my entire career that have come back. Like actually come back and shook my hand and said, thank you and took a picture and gave me a hug. I'll remember those moments for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing like those moments in it as hard as it is, it's still a rewarding career. And if it is your dream, it's your passion, do it, do it. Um, if you want to do more, you want to go above and beyond, you want to do 
critical care. I still say flying is where it's at, man. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, you know, I've been doing it for almost eight years and I freaking love every second of it. Um, I get to go fly in a helicopter every day, which is badass, I gotta say. Uh, but I love doing good medicine and I'm not the, the most book smart. I'm not Todd Christopher or some other, you know, savant in, in air <laughs> medical or, or EMS, but I love providing good care and having good protocols and be able to make a difference for your patient carrying blood on every call and and so many naysayers be like, oh, well, blood didn't make a difference. Bullshit. <laughs> like yep. seeing it yep. firsthand, I don't care what the data says, but seeing it firsthand, patients that I've taken care of that probably wouldn't have made it to the hospital because we gave them blood, you know, um, being able to do things like that for our patient, um, which EMS is getting on too, I gotta say, like, yeah. If is if air medical is not for you, find an EMS agency that does all these things because they're they're out there. Mm-hmm. Um, the funding, the everything out there is has gotten so more advanced because it used to be like grounds way at the bottom, and then air medical is like ten steps above them, and it's not that way anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, there are places that that don't have the funding or the abilities of the protocols to do anything critical care or let alone innovate. But, um, the gap is closed a little bit, man. Like what we're there 50, 50 for just a faster ride. Mm-hmm. Um, the abilities of AMS has gotten so much, so much more, but it's still, um, you go see amazing things. Uh, like I said, I've been all over the freaking state. I've been almost every major hospital in San Antonio, Dallas, Houston, and Austin. Um, it, it's an awesome job. Mm. Um, so I, I would never stop anyone from getting in this field, regardless of how hard it is or, or the hard moments that I've had. Um, I think even for you, like, even if you did it for a couple of years and you're not in it right this second, I don't, I hope no one necessarily regrets it. They may be glad they're not EMS anymore because they're just worn out and tired, but I hope that they realize that they've made a difference in somebody's life and that they can walk away and do something else and be grateful for that. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I know. I know. I, uh, I can tell for you, you have empathy and that's a key facet for, uh, people who love this field and actually can do good mm-hmm. work because every uh, whether you're empathetic or non-empathetic, everybody can follow protocol. And having those mm-hmm. type of uh, having those type of um, moments where you're you've you've experienced enough to know what to do, like, that's thought that's amazing. But empathy mm-hmm. is very hard to teach. Um, yeah. Caring for your patients is very hard to teach. And I can right. see I, I didn't have, especially towards the end of my of my career, that I did not have empathy, and it was very hard to have empathy. Um, so for somebody like you, who uh, you're twelve years in, that's that's amazing. Um, keep that up. That's uh, twenty more years, rare. hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, that's not normal. 
so I think you know I've worked with a lot of people, and and you've worked with a lot of people too. But being yeah. empathetic is probably the one of the most important factors to act to act to medicine. Yeah. So strong em- empathy and, and compassion, mm-hmm. I think, or and just like when we talked about professionalism, I mean, it's just those are lost um, things that make a difference in your patient care. That make a difference in you. They make a difference in your psyche and how long you can do this job. I mean, they they are important, but it's hard not, to not coming out and coming a serial becoming a serial killer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. Yeah. You can't teach it. Yeah. Well, strong work, man. I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, great to kind of unveil some of the things that are happening at EMS uh, in the flight world. Uh, much appreciated and uh, stay safe. Uh, keep saving lives, bro. I will. Thanks very much, man. Right, man. Hope to uh, talk to you again soon. We'll you do, too. Bro. Bye-bye. Bye.